Chapter 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. Pushpay emerged very quickly to become a fixture amongst the tech scene in New Zealand. With a valuation of over 2 billion New Zealand dollars and revenues passing 250 million, Pushpay is still growing steadily after its hypergrowth periods during 2014 and 2015. This episode outlines some of the near-death experiences Pushpay had prior to this time and discusses how one can navigate an organisation that is going through extreme growth. But let's start introducing our guests. I'm Josh Robb. I think I was employee number 12 or something in um, January 2014. Uh, I knew the original kind of founding engineer at Pushpay and he was he'd approached me. His name's Phil Howie and he's a really important person in Pushpay's history because he's the person who was willingest to say yes to Chris and Elliot when they approached him to build the initial prototype that became the product. He approached me and said, hey, some friends of mine want me to build this app that we, they could use to pay for things. What do you think? And I was like, well, that's about the worst idea I've ever heard in the world. Whatever you do, don't take equity, um, which is possibly the worst advice I've ever given anyone in their career. Um, but I ended up uh, working in an office with him and carpooling with him every day. So we'd sort of talk about push pay and I'd sort of help him with some advice, uh, sort of technical advice. And then over time, a lot of my advice boiled down to, you lot really need to find someone who asks, how will this make us money and hire them? Um, and in about kind of early 2013 i remember having lunch with phil one day and him telling me hey we've hired this guy called paul i'm not really sure what he does but he seems to be asking how will this make us money a lot and i was like that sounds like a really good thing i was the chief operating officer for pushpay uh, joined as employee number eight came on board to help chris and elliot uh, with their fledgling startup um, on a on a free secondment for a period of time to help them understand where they wanted to take it and Really enjoyed working with them and really sort of found our feet uh, through that process and, and, and grew the business to, to something quite quite large. Uh, enjoyed it the whole way along. And uh, for the record of the jury, your name? Did I miss that part? That's a bit, bit rocky, isn't it? Paul Shingles. I'm Audrey Chang and I was first or near first product person to join um, Pushpay back in January 2015. Um, and I guess I just helped to grow the product management and design practice over five and a half or so years. Okay, so for those of us who weren't with the journey, what I can tell externally is that Pushpay raised, or at least listed very early, so had a capital strategy to do that. What happened before that time and how much water was under the bridge before listing? Yeah, it, 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 it would be the, the typical uh, narrative for most technology startups uh, in New Zealand up until that point. Um, we, well, prior to, to myself joining the team, had built a prototype app and uh, to facilitate payments. They'd sold it to all, all and sundry, whoever would would come along and sign up to, to accept payments through this platform, this prototype platform. We had accountants, we had schools, we had gyms, and we had churches. Uh, and first light, electri- first light electrical pool. First light electrical, uh, you name it. Um, even uh, an art gallery, I think, was one of our customers. Um, 
And it was through that journey that we, that we discovered that we had a, a particular sweet spot or at least a particular felt problem within the church space where uh, people wanted to tithe but didn't have the capability to do it then and there. And our platform solved that problem, um, whereas the problems were less felt and less severe in other sectors. Um, and so then finding that product market fit, finding that opportunity uh, and then starting to chase that opportunity, raising some funds to go after that opportunity. And it was shortly after that that we listed. Uh, and it was it was more sort of off the, the back of the Hewlett's investing in the business and seeing a real clear step path forward for the business uh, and a need to raise money um, frequently in the future that uh, they saw. Um, and also, you've got to remember, it was at the heady times of zero. Zero had been, I think, listed for three, four years. Uh, they were getting real traction in the market. There were a bunch of other businesses listing at the same time. So it was pretty, pretty frothy. Um, so there was a good opportunity to get some uh, good exposure at that time. I think the other kind of consideration there, Paul, from my recollection was that um, that there was a bunch of private capital that was interested in going in, but in order to um, provide a kind of visibility on a liquidity date for the private capital, there would need to be some sort of commitment to a public listing. Um, and so that was an important kind of... Uh, Lever. Lever, yeah, correct, exactly. It was like it was obvious the business was going to need a lot of capital to get to cash flow break even, just in terms of what was required to be successful in North America and with the church market and everything else. And so, in order to be able to raise, kind of creating that liquidity was also a really strong consideration, which seemed to make a lot of sense. It has a whole bunch of costs, obviously, not just literal costs, but also sort of cultural and overhead costs for management. But but overall, access to capital was one of the number one jobs for CEOs and boards. So. Tell us about what happened preceding that in terms of capital raising, near-death experiences. Yeah, I mean, it was it was late 2013. Um, we we'd, we'd, just, we'd determined that the US was definitely where we wanted to be. We'd worked out that the faith market was uh, where the product was best suited. Um, we knew we wanted to grow. We'd sent uh, Chris and Elliot up to the States to do a couple of fact-finding missions. Um, I think we'd even briefly set up an office uh, in California, um, and and we you know we knew we had something we wanted to really push it forward, but we needed that capital, and so we were quickly quickly reaching cash zero day. Um, now there were a lot of people involved in in, in helping us find that funding, um, and a, a, a long story that's not really mine to tell, but I'm sure they, that you know Chris and and Rodney and Elliot could talk talk to that period. Um, but we we got very very close to cash zero, and it was early December. Um, we, we believed in the product, we believed in what we were doing, but we were running out of money. And Chris and Rodney pulled me aside and said, look, we're, we're about to run out of cash. Um, we've got a couple of options here. We, we just keep going and, and, and hope that we can pull it off before Christmas, or we have a conversation with the engineers and, and let them know that we are at cash zero and we may not be able to pay them this month and let them make the call. And it was a scary time, but it was actually really easy because there was only one answer to that question. It was be absolutely transparent and open with the team. Um, let them know where we're at and let them make their own decisions on, on what they wanted to do. Uh, and so that's what we did. And, and not one of the team bailed on us. They all, all believed in what we were doing. They believed that we would find uh, what we needed to find in order to keep the business going. And we all we all cracked on. I'm sure there were some tough conversations like the one I had with my wife where I said, don't go too, too crazy with the Christmas presents this year for the kids. Um, but everyone stayed committed. And I think it was around about the 14th, 15th of the month that uh, we finally got uh, the, the, the investment we needed from the Hewlett family. Um, they invested an initial $2 million to, 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 to keep the business afloat and to help us accelerate. 
Uh, and then there were a couple of, I think there's one additional, one or two additional raising um, fundraisers between that and when we listed in uh, in August of 2014. But I remember when when that funding landed and we got the Hewlett's on board and, and uh, I was informed of for, for the first time that, you know, this is conditional, well, not necessarily conditional, but it was a real strong preference to list the business. Um, the initial dates that were being bandied about was May of 2014. And I, <laughs> there was no way that we were going to be ready to do that. I couldn't figure out how we were going to do it. I thought even even 2014 as a, as a year would be tough. Uh, and there was a lot of work from a lot of people to get us to that point, and a lot of advisors that helped us to get us to that point. We we're in August of 2014. We listed on the NZAX. I remember interviewing with you, Paul, in December, and saying you were like, "You should come and work with us." And I was like, "You, I know you've told your team that you've run out of money, like," and you're like, "No, nah, no, nah, it's going to be fine." And sure enough, it was. But I really appreciated the sort of transparency that you and Chris had around that because it was it was, and I, for me, I was like, "Well." I didn't have a job, so I was like, well, I had this job offer with Spark, <clears throat> Spark Digital, actually. And I was like, well, I guess I can go work for them in January if you guys haven't raised or if you've raised, I'll come work with you. Shane Sampson, the Pushpay CFO, who was at Spark for a long time, likes to remind me that every day that I worked at Pushpay was a better choice than working at Spark. So, so many people never get exposed to quite how often or quite how close companies get to day zero. And so... The first time that you go through that and you're inside the tent, it can be quite confronting. Would you share any advice for people that possibly are having that first time experience of seeing the reality? Just yeah, be transparent, be honest. Um, don't try and don't try and hide it from anybody. Um, everybody is a grown up. Everybody needs to be able to make their own decisions on these things, and and also people will surprise you. Um, they will surprise you with their loyalty and their and uh, their belief in, in what it is you're doing. Um, so just just be absolutely upfront with everybody. I've been in zero day quite a lot in my career in various different businesses, and I think one of the things that I really admired about Pushpay was just the level of candor they had with the team at that point in time. It's different. It, like I think the answer, to be honest, about how you handle that is different depending on the size and stage of the business. Um, you, you can't be super transparent with people if you're a listed entity. <laughs> um, there's there's different restrictions, but when you're smaller. Um, being candid is the only right choice. It's the right thing to do for people and let them make their own choices. That chapter got the company towards listing. There's obviously a lot of overhead and work around being on the public markets. And so what was it like being part of the organization when you're trying to get ready for a public listing that early on in, in the organization's life as well? Yeah, um, it's 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 interesting. There's, I guess to to know what it was like for Pushpay in particular, um, we should probably rewind it a little bit and and talk about pre uh, that that December investment that Cash Zero Day, post it, and then what then led up to cash uh, to to listing. So before the Hewlett's invested, um, you know, we were pretty um, pretty pretty cowboy with with systems and processes and how we ran the business. Um, because we didn't have a lot of customers. We had less than 50 customers. And of those customers, I think only about 10 to 15 were actually paying us any material money. Um, so, you know, we could run our sales um, process, our sales uh, CRM out of Trello. And we did. So, you know, to, to know how many sales, how many customers we had, uh, we would walk over to Elliot's desk and look at how many uh, how many cards he had in the in the customer column. And when we asked him how many deals he had that were going to land that month, we'd look at how many he had under the closing column. Uh, and that was fine for that stage, but you know, when the Hewlett's put two million dollars into the into the business, there was an expectation that we would obviously start to level up our processes because you know that two million dollars was to fund scale. 
Um, and so, you know, we, I, you know, personally, I really looked at it from that perspective. It wasn't about listing. It was just about scale. And, um, you know, the same things that we're going to support the business for listed as a listed entity were the same things that we're going to support the business as a scale business. So the first thing I did uh, was to put in a new CRM for us to be able to track everything called Nutshell, uh, thinking that that would probably do us for two years, maybe. Um, it was a $15 per user platform. Um, it required no training of our sales team, which is what we were looking for. We just needed something we could bolt in that people could be instantly familiar with, that we could then get the reporting and information we needed to predict how many deals would close. So we could then forecast and build our revenue models off of that. Um, I thought it'd last two and a half years to three years, maybe. Uh, it lasted seven months before we were ripping it out and replacing it with Salesforce, um, which is around about that time that we listed, um, just because of the growth and the scale that we experienced during that time. Um, but yeah, that, that theme, I think it sort of is translated across all parts of the business at that time. It wasn't necessarily getting ready for, for listing, although, you know, from a financial reporting, from a legal perspective, from a compliance perspective, there was a lot of work happening there, but largely with external advisors. For the business as a whole, it was just what do we need to scale and to go from two to three customers a month to 40 to 50 to customers a month to 600 to 700 customers a month and just putting those processes and platform, uh, platforms in place. And so looking at that topic, there'll be plenty of companies or people listening to this that are possibly in that scale up or ramp up phase where they're having to make decisions about when to pull the trigger on certain systems and is it a Salesforce or is it something that's smaller than a Salesforce or is it just a make do for, for longer? Would you have any advice about what calculus to make? Um, yeah. I, it, I got re- I've got reckons on this as well, Paul, so <laughs> you go and then I'll come. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it really does depend on your funding situation, your growth ambitions and what, you, what you're able to realize in the market. Um, my team gave me no end of, of crap for the fact that we put Nutshell, uh, Nutshell in as a very simple platform. Um, but at the time, it was definitely the right call for us. We, we didn't have the time to put anything robust or, rig- or rigorous in. We didn't have the skills to put Salesforce in. Uh, so it was what we, what we had the skills and expertise to deploy rapidly to start getting our arms around these things. And you know, never be afraid to make the decision that you need to make with the information you've got at the time. And if it winds up being wrong seven months later, well, you know, that's, a, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but if you do have funding and you are looking to scale and you you know you're looking to you've got some really big growth ambitions, then yeah, you need to be thinking three years out and start thinking about the best tools you can put in place. It's the it's the sales forces, it's the marketos, it's the net suites, um, because you know the less time you spend swapping these things out, the more time you can focus on growing. I think um, just to add to that, you know, I I do come across the odd business that's bought in Salesforce when they're still pre product market fit. Um, without realizing that they're going to need a full-time Salesforce administrator to actually get any value out of it. And, you know, there's certain capital requirements that come with the big boy tools. And so I I agree with Paul, like actually, despite Nutshell being a punchline at Pushpay for quite a long period of time, it was actually a really pragmatic decision in terms of the evolution of systems. Um, And that going from nothing to trying to implement enterprise scale products whether it's salesforce or you know lots of the other ones out there whether it's marketo or Zora or whatever uh would be just a complete waste of capital and, and human uh potential uh, at the same time um i think you need to be really hygienic about uh what your core metrics and what your core business are and kind of thinking about how you're capturing that stuff um, and so again, like Nutshell was a really good decision. There was actually a really serious and quite protracted disagreement in the product engineering team at this period of time about whether we should build our own CRM 
which is possibly one of the stupidest arguments I've ever been involved in. And the answer is obviously no. But we had some people in product engineering who hadn't really, didn't have any experience with kind of business systems and tools. And they were looking at this from a, we have a customer onboarding problem and we could build customer onboarding into the product without thinking about all of the supporting um, requirements that were going to exist in the business in terms of financial reporting, revenue recognition, um, compliance, audit, controls. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not just kind of a few columns in a, in a database table. Um, and so there was a lot of backwards and forwards over that um, early on. And so it, it, the answer also is it depends a little bit on your strategy. If you're a sort of um, marketing-led, growth-led business where self-sign-up is really important, then really slick onboarding is super, super important. But if you're kind of committed to a strategy that involves quite a high-touch sales process and push pay was, then actually you can paper over a lot of problems with your onboarding with humans. And so you kind of have to make a choice about, do you want a really polished onboarding experience or do you want a really powerful CRM supporting this that can plug into a whole bunch of different third-party business systems and actually drive business processes and reporting for the future? And so there's a really tough set of trade-offs there. But in almost no universe is the right answer, we should build a CRM. I think the one thing that like I experienced was that like we were growing really fast you know, when I joined and we were outgrowing our processes like what felt almost like each day <laughs> like you'd come into a work and you'd be like oh that's not working anymore and you'd have to like adapt and adjust and that's what i felt all the time i think what was great was i mean salesforce was i think not long in place when i started but it was already in place but what was great about that was that it was we were able to start scaling that as we grew so Maybe Nutshell wouldn't have taken us that far, but I think establishing the processes um, and then being able to get Salesforce in place helped us to grow. And like Josh said, like, you know, we because of the pace of growth that we had and the processes that we were outgrowing, we did apply a lot of people to problems initially before we actually put systems in place. And I think that was really helpful for us to understand what we needed before we went off and sort of bought tools or or invested the time to put tools into place. That's a really good point, Audrey. Like, where is the leverage in the business before we sort of committed to it? It was, it was kind of the question. Yeah, I remember when um, you, relatively early on, Josh, you pulled me aside at some point and said, look, I, you didn't say that you had to apologize, but you, you said, look, I, I finally get it. Uh, you know, I've been so frustrated at some of the waste, you know, the, the product, the engineering, the process waste that we had in the business. Um, but you probably so I said, I get it. I get that what we're after actually a, a lot of the times is just leverage, leverage in a new market, leverage in a new customer segment, leverage into a process so that we can get things going. Um, and I think that was really important in those early days is that we didn't necessarily know what was going to be the thing that was going to win, but we were trying a lot of different things that we wound up having to throw something away like nutshell or, or, or a product or a feature. It was fine because it, it allowed us to get leverage to get to that next point, that next phase. And so for me, you know, nutshell was about us being able to count the customers and then Salesforce was about us being able to manage the customers, uh, and, and, and measure where they were and what they were doing and who was doing it. Um, and, you know, we, we were moving from a point where we didn't even know how many customers we had to, to nutshell. So, yeah. And I think we applied a lot of the test and learn, um, philosophy behind a lot of things. And a lot of the testing was human testing, <laughs> you know what I mean? So we tested a lot of stuff with ourselves and we were like, oh, that's not working. So we're glad we didn't like sort of go off and like build a system or implement a system that wasn't going to support us with what we ultimately wanted to do. So I think that growth mindset and that test and learn, uh, mentality that we had helped us actually to, um, think about different ways of solving problems and understanding how to solve those problems before we kind of invested in tooling or invested in, in big processes to support it. 
I think one of the other things around listing that um, that I learned that was fascinating, fascinating and terrifying for me, is you, you you have this assumption that a listed business has got their it's got their stuff together. You know that they've got armies of people pulling all of this information together, and you know it's all du- double, tripled, and quadruple checked. Uh, and and we were we were running our reports off, off spreadsheets and whiteboards and 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 all all of the different sort of very ad hoc data sources that we could. And we're doing the best we could, and you learn pretty quickly that actually everyone's probably in the same boat. It's you know the Sparks and the you know the, the Genesis and and the, the large big corporates they're probably able to sort of pull all the stuff out of their ERP systems, but there's a big chunk of companies that are just just pulling it together off spreadsheets and doing the best that they can. So after IPO. Pushpay went through a period of hypergrowth with no exaggeration. In June of 2014, annual recurring revenue was under a million New Zealand dollars, but by September 2015, it was well over 10 million. Was that a surprise to everyone, or was that something that was anticipated and planned for? So yeah, it was it was early 20, early 2015 up in America. Um, we had the board coming up in a week and a half's time, and we had a, an offsite planning session. We were just sort of trying to figure out where we could be. And we'd gone through a process of, of forecasting out. And again, it was largely just sort of me doing a graph and saying, if we grow at the same rate, this is where we end up. And it was a reasonably attractive number. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was you know it was reasonably attractive. Uh, and we sat down and we started to build a plan around what we needed to do to deliver those numbers. And you know, a few of us were starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and I turned around to the, to the team and said, look, the reality of what we're proposing here is that we will continue to grow the, you know, the growth on the growth uh, at a similar rate to what we're growing at the moment. And I don't know about anybody else, but I'm kind of a little bit more ambitious than that. I'll, I want to see us strive. I want to see us push. I want to see how fast we can actually make this go. And so we wound up rehashing the plans completely and just trying to sort of figure out well, actually how fast could we make it, uh, how, how fast could we make the business grow? Um, how quickly could we get to some of these numbers? And I think that was about the time that we we pulled out the 15 million ARR for 15 million dollars um, by 20 by the end of 2015 plan. Uh, it was roughly something like that, uh, and uh, put that in front of of the board. Said we need another 15 million dollars worth of revenue to be able to get this, but we think we could hit this within the next 12 months. Um, got board to sign up to it, and away we went. We went from this kind of um objective-based kind of planning, certainly in product engineering, to as a whole business, having really clear quarterly targets for customer acquisition, for customer onboarding times. Like we got really, really quantitative about the business and about what needed to happen. And so like Audrey alluded to this earlier, like one of the most successful software products or projects I've ever worked on is this project that we did in early 2015, where and you should talk more about this, Paul, but it was taking somewhere between sort of 40 and 80 days to onboard a push pay customer um, because what would happen was they'd sign, that the salesperson would close them, they'd sign the DocuSign, and then we would send them a sort of 70-page PDF for them to fill out with all of their processing agreement stuff in it, and it would have all sorts of scary language about the PCI DSS and their liability and blah, 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 and we'd have to hound them to get that back. It was administered by a third party, and we realized actually that, and we were losing quite a high proportion of closed deals after they were closed because they weren't returning this documentation to us. And so we moved to building in this onboarding system for them to collect all the information and produce the documentation for them that we called Funnel, obviously. Um, and that dropped the time from, let's say, 50 days to like well under three days um, 
for, for customers to go from signing their software agreement with us to having the information that we need to actually onboard them onto the platform. Just to understand that that hyper growth um, period, um, you've got to understand that what was happening in 2014. Um, 2014, as mentioned before, was, is a bit of a halcyon year. Um, we got funding, we were scaling the business, we were able to actually start understanding our business and predicting how many customers we could get. And we were starting to get traction and and, and we were signing roughly 35 to 40 customers a month, but it was taking us 45 days to get those customers live. We used a, a third-party uh, um, processor to onboard and uh, sign up the accounts, and we essentially got a cut, a very small cut of the revenue for all of those customers we introduced. And we did that on purpose because from the get-go, we never wanted to touch the money. Um, Chris and Elliot were really clear from the, from the get-go. They don't want to touch the money. They wanted to provide a value-add software platform that created value um, that didn't touch the money, which meant, A, we didn't get exposed to uh, compliance and, and regulations like KYC and AML, um, but it also meant that we weren't playing in this heavily commoditized space, which was payments. We could just talk about the value that our software provided. And so we'd outsourced that to a, a gentleman out of Texas, and uh, he thought he was God's gift to payment processing. And he honestly wanted to have an hour and a half conversation with every single customer that came through the pipeline. Uh, about the merchant processing agreement, which, which was about 45, well, you know, 45 to 65 pages long. Uh, and, and the trouble is we'd, we'd gotten these customers so excited about the push pay product that they didn't really care what the payment terms were. They just wanted to sign them so that they could get online with this product. But this, this third party just started sowing so much doubt in customers' minds that they started questioning whether they were doing the right thing. They started questioning the rates they were paying. And we were losing anywhere between 30 and 50% of the customers we signed up through that process and just, just abandoning uh, after they'd already signed our agreements. So we knew we had to do something, and that forced our hand. And so we started researching and decided that the right idea would be for us to become our own ISO, which is an independent sales organization, which allowed us to onboard customers and become effectively the merchant of record for those customers. Um, and so we, we started doing the research at the same time as going through all the, all the rigmarole of trying to list the business. We're trying to re-engineer how we onboard customers, how, how we provision their services, who we provision it through, how we get all the legal uh, components in place for that, how we go through a compliance process with third-party process to allow us to do it. But the the interesting thing is we were doing it for the right reason, which was we knew we could deliver a better customer experience. We knew that you know if we could own that 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 merchant processing agreement, that merchant agreements process, that we'd do a better job because we could throw more people at it. And the third party that we're using would refused to to hire up. Uh, I remember getting a phone call late in the piece where he said, "I'm going away on two weeks vacation, so I'll see you in two weeks." With no backup, no additional people, we were struggling to get them to sign up the deals we were doing at the time, uh, and it was just an absolute, absolute uh, disaster. So we uh, we launched uh, what was called ZipZap, and we purposely called it ZipZap processing at the time, so that if it failed and we absolutely stuffed it up, that it wouldn't poison or tarnish the uh, the Pushbay brand. Um, also meant that we could, you know, talk about the the great team from ZipZap who we work very closely with, but not actually get drawn into a pricing debate. Um, but one of the beautiful things of doing this was twofold. One, um, we went from the you know the, the 38 basis points roughly we were generating in commission at the time to generating 110 basis points in commission. But more than that, because we were now the merchant of record, we were able to represent the entire revenue for the payment processing as our revenue. Um, so going from recognizing 38 basis points in, in the um, 
in, on the transaction to you know two and a half to three and a half percent per transaction. Um, and if you look at the graphs, if you look at the the the, the way that the business grew and, and through into late 2014 and into 2015, it was that that really drove that. The 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 acquisition pipeline didn't change. Well. Initially, the acquisition pipeline didn't change too much, but because we were able to onboard customers faster and they were able to to talk about the value we were giving them faster and generate that goodwill, it accelerated from there. But largely, it was just getting customers up and running faster, getting them into the product faster, getting them to realize the value faster and, and, and obviously delivering revenue for the business faster and then being able to recognize that full revenue chain. And so that's where that hyper growth really started to kick off. So when it comes to sort of planning and expectation setting around hyper growth, we didn't really set it because it kind of caught us by surprise. <laughs> we were so busy trying to trying to optimize for getting customers up and running fast, so fast that the you know the revenue outcome sort of it was secondary. And we always said that you know the the just process that we went through or the the partner that we chose, the way we solved this problem would be customer first, revenue second. And so there wasn't any real guidance set around that. Um, it was after that that we started to really get traction. We started understanding the business, and that became a real lever that we we're able to to use to both drive revenue, revenue growth, and also investor interest. That we were able to put more process around. Well, what is it we're trying to achieve? How are we trying to get traction? And we were able to put some real clear company goals around what it was we were delivering, and then those company goals filtered down to the entire business. So how we made our product decisions was well, what's going to get us to 600 customers? What's going to get our average revenue per account up to $125. Um, and it was it was all sort of boiling down from that point. But the hyper growth part of it was was very, uh, wasn't we didn't set any expectations because we didn't necessarily know that we were going to be hitting that at that time. Um, later on, it got interesting. Um, we, 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 we announced a market. I, I don't know when it was we did, but we announced a market that we would hit $100 million in revenue within the next three years. Uh, and it's just, it's so, <laughs> so funny how that came about. I simply had Chris walk into my office and he said, Peter, Peter Hewlett wants to announce that we're going to hit 100 million uh, ARR in three years time. Do you think that's a good idea? And I just draw a graph on my, on my whiteboard. I looked at the, 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 how steep that line was and said, no, it looks all right. And then the next day we announced we were going to do $100 million in three years time. And not only did we hit it, but we did it, what, six months, six months early? And we're going to end this episode at a point where it might seem a little early also. But we will be talking more with Audrey, Josh and Paul for a second episode which focuses on recipes to grow product engineering and product management teams. So keep an ear out for that. This has been 6.4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures and learnings for Kiwi tech organisations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.